0: And good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink, who wasn't today. I was not late.
1: That's
0: right. Uh, Josh is on the board for us and our guest is Tyler Sitt. Uh, his new book is Staying Awake, The Gospel for Changemakers. And he is a first for us on the show. He is a gay, Asian, millennial pastor. We've never had one on, have we?
1: No, not with that spin of the wheel in
0: combination. Right, right, So, Tyler, <laughs> Welcome
1: think
2: you
0: so much for having me, David. We're always looking for new and different in the LGBT community. So you are new and different. Um, we are the definition of intersectionality right. in our community. Right. For sure. <laughs> so, um, That's the goal, yeah. <laughs> one of the things that your publicist put into uh, the pitch to uh, bring your book on um was that you can talk about all this anti-Asian hate that's going on. I didn't know I was supposed to hate Asians.
3: Oh, you missed that memo? I did miss that memo, yeah. It's it's, it's the new cool thing. No, anti-Asian hate has been a part of the American story for the past 150 years. It's just um, this right now is receiving a particular amount of attention because of COVID and because of the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes.
0: Oh, that's right. Because um, you caused it, didn't you?
3: I, I literally, I, I personally caused COVID. Yes. Okay. Okay.
0: So we were trying to trace the origins <laughs> yeah. of it. Now we know.
3: Yeah. yeah. I could have just told you to come to Minneapolis and then. <laughs> and,
0: and come get some COVID.
3: To come get some COVID. I'll serve it out of my garage. <laughs> it's, it's all fresh. Yep. Fresh out of the rice cooker. No, I, I think that, like um, if I, I don't have the statistic on my on hand, but Stop Asian Hate has recorded um, around four thousand hate crimes against Asian Americans just in this past year because of COVID. And women are two point three times more likely to be targets of hate crimes than men.
0: The so, other group, really yes, women? Well, the other group that's been targeted are the elderly. And what that says yeah. to me are these people who are committing these crimes are just little cowards. You know, I'll yeah. big tough guy and I'll go beat up a woman. I'll go beat up a seventy year old right. man.
1: You know, that's right. Okay. The word, the word I would use, I cannot say in the air. But,
0: right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: From it's, the show I mean, before us,
3: five year old. Right.
1: Somebody
0: yeah. on the show sure. before us was here. Uh, and she said, yeah, somebody she used to work with uh, uh, is in a parking lot of a Home Depot, and somebody came up to her, and she's Asian. Uh, somebody came up to her and started screaming at her about whatever. She told them to mm, off and got in her car and drove off. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. should happen more often. <laughs> but Just Driving off. I
3: mean, yeah, I don't know if you saw the video on social media of, there was an aging grandma who was being harassed on the street, and she, like, the video just cuts the that guy who was making fun of her mm-hmm. being in a stretcher, mm-hmm. and she's <laughs> off to the side. Like, she put this guy in a stretcher. So, yeah, there's definitely, like, sentiment in the aging community of rising and pushing back on the harassment that we're experiencing.
0: Good. Good. Al- although I want people to be safe as well. You said the history goes back 150 years. Tell us a little bit about yeah. it so that we can learn all about hate because it's such a good thing to know about.
3: <laughs> and I know that like LGBTQ people don't know anything about hate, so like, yeah, let me just quick bring that back. No, uh, so I mean 1882 was when the Chinese Exclusion Act passed. This was the first Legislation that specifically targets a a particular racial group, and it it was a travel ban for Chinese immigrants. It uh, it arose from both the labor movement and the KKK uh, that were saying, like, we don't want any more Chinese immigrants. The labor movement because they were they were claiming that the Chinese immigrants were stealing jobs. The KKK because they wanted to preserve a white nation. And, uh, and a lot of stereotypes kind of got set in a, into our DNA, that um, uh, Chinese women were targeted as, and stereotyped as being sex workers and promiscuous and uh, sexually alluring in, in a way that threatens the upstanding white American man, and Chinese laborers were seen as poor and uh, un- unable to um, become truly American, perpetually an outsider. And uh, we see some filters of that And in, in as soon as um, for example, the Atlanta massacre that happened a couple weeks ago, like that is the fruit of the seeds that were planted over a century mm-hmm. ago.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's really prevalent. I mean, there were quite a few um, even newscasters who seemed to, um, to to buy into some of that stereotyping about the Atlanta the mm-hmm. Atlanta
0: murders. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, yeah. it, it was just like, what? What did you just say? Right, and it turned out that most of them were mothers, you know, just very mm-hmm. average community members. Mm-hmm. But
1: it was, it was disturbing to me that they gave so much time and credence to the claims that the murderer made, that impugned, mm-hmm. impugned the reputations of all the all the victims. Um, saying that he, right. he he had a sex addiction and, and so he went there. So now we tied it all to all these women are sex sex workers. Mm-hmm. That's bull crap. And they the media let that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah. I'm still angry about that.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean I think it's really striking that there's um, so much there, right? Like he was saying, "I feel like I have a sex addiction and I have to take out the, the people who are attempting me, which is like a whole <laughs> uh, attitude towards sexuality and linking sexuality to violence that I think is uh, is really tough and something that we really have to confront. And then, of course, like you were saying, like automatically assuming um, tropes of, of what Asian women are or are not. And and then lastly, like, uh, like you said, paying so much attention To the guy who did the killing, and not paying attention really to the people who died and honoring the lives of the people who died. So, yeah, lots Mm -hmm. lots of layers happened in that event and massacre for sure. In
1: 2021, (laughs) it's amazing. Yes,
3: yes. (laughs) I mean, I think that it's it's clear to me that um, that COVID has really elevated the anxiety of our country, and that anxiety is. Um, being outlet and and the kind of like pressure valve for that anxiety is put on the shoulders of Asian Americans
0: now people who hate and I really have trouble understanding them they're hating Mm -hmm. specifically because Trump told them the what he calls the China virus uh, was brought here by I guess American businessmen who were doing business in China who else would have been how how else would have it gotten here Um, but, um, who am I supposed to hate and how can I tell the difference between people if they're Chinese or Korean or, I mean, I just see people, (laughs) I, I have a lot of trouble and and then do we include South Asians in there or are people from Nepal? Okay. Right. Can you clear this up for me?
3: (laughs) I wish I had a bulleted list for you. That could just be really clear on, on how to reasonably hate someone in the country. But as it turns out, he is in itself irrational. It's intrinsically irrational. So like trying to make sense out of it. I mean, very similarly, the, the hatred that we've felt targeted against us in the LGBT community is like, you know, so much violence and anger is being driven towards, uh, a uh, 15-year-old guy who cases a 15-year-old guy is so much more anger and rage is directed towards that than the gun violence happening in our communities mm-hmm. or like the things that are truly tearing apart the fabric of our society. Um, and I and I think that's because hate is uh, at its core, hate is irrational.
0: The reaction to the Atlanta shooting was so different Mm -hmm. than a mass murder or mass shooting like the one in Bryan uh, this week down here in Texas. Or Mm -hmm. I can't even keep track of, there were three or four mass shootings this week. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For those, it's thoughts and prayers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm it just doesn't make sense. Going back to the history a little bit. Okay, so the Chinese were taking jobs because they were actually taking the jobs that nobody else wanted, building the railroad, which I'm sure was backbreaking work right. at the time. Um right. But then there was hate against the Japanese before World War II. That's
3: right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, uh, so it, it was kind of an interesting flip-flop because originally, uh, from what I under- I'm not a historian, but from what I understand and from being in the Asian community, like in the late 1800s, there's a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment, and Japanese immigrants were considered more industrious, and uh, more likely to become better Americans. So it was kinda like, we don't want the Chinese, we do want the Japanese. Fast forward to World War II, and Pearl Harbor happens, and like, almost overnight, the Jap- like, so many Japanese Americans are take- ripped away from their homes, ripped away from their businesses, their bank accounts are frozen overnight, and put into camps, of incarceration camps. And then, all of a sudden, the Chinese were friendly because the Chinese were helping to resist the Japanese. So it was like a complete <laughs> flip. Uh, and, and then in Cold War, we saw lots of different dynamics around anti-communism, so like, I just feel like there's, throughout history, there's been such a yo-yo effect of whether or not Chinese, or just more broadly, Asian Americans are considered safe or not, foreigners, or one of us, uh, outsiders, or, you know, like, it, it's just always kind of this back and forth depending on the convenience of the of the people in power, and I think that's, um, that precariousness is part of what it means to be Asian American.
0: And, and, okay, so bringing it up to current day, are we supposed to like the North Koreans or not?
3: <laughs> well... Um, I, I, I can't speak to international like, geopolitical politics, but like, if someone from North Korea came to the United States, then I would hope that they would get the same, uh, the same treatment and rights and privileges that anyone else coming from France or England or Germany would receive.
0: Well, somebody coming from North Korea would be coming here probably as a refugee and asking for asylum.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, think, so, I, I think that, yeah. yeah. There's there's a lot of there's a lot, there's a lot of layers there, but I do think that um, I mean, just speaking of the the treatment of German and, and French and European immigrants, like in all of those eras that I talked about, in the Chinese Exclusion Act, the the railroad, World War II, like all of at simultaneously, there was also immigration coming from Europe that was not being treated. The same, even though a lot of the same conditions were there. Like, European immigrants were taking certain jobs, yeah. and uh, Germany thought Obviously, Germany was not on a good side in World War II, but like the German Americans, uh, while they faced some hardship, like it doesn't, the incarceration camps of the Japanese was just totally different. And I think that putting those side by side helps to understand how. Um, As a country, we've we've really distrusted Asian America, or we've really distrusted Asia for a long time.
0: Well, in Dallas, as um, the non-white population grew, uh, especially around the 1920s, Dallas City Council, Mm -hmm. in their wisdom, uh, zoned the city so that as you're going Mm -hmm. south of the river, uh, the first neighborhood was for Jews. The next neighborhood, no Jews were allowed. Uh, The next neighborhood, Mm uh, Hispanics could live the neighborhood after that. Um, blacks could live. Right. Being right. bigoted takes a lot of effort and time and energy to try to even remember all of the stupid rules.
1: <laughs> well, it's about
0: white dominance. Well, but, uh, but um, e- even within that, Dallas had no Jews areas.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So.
0: Oh yeah. 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 And so.
3: The twin cities. If, I mean, the twin cities in, like, you know, progressive Minnesota, quote-unquote, like, there was definitely a history of anti-Semitism in the early 1900s that we kind of had to wrestle with. Mm So, yeah, there's, um, that's definitely a a history that is, I think, much closer to where we are now than than we care to admit.
0: Now, one thing about your church, you're located in the same neighborhood where George Floyd was killed. Yes. Um... The trial going on now must be bringing back horrible memories. Uh, what was it like during the demonstrations? And we need to take a break in about two minutes, but I, I want to talk about this oh, sure. a little bit. Um, what w- what was that whole incident like, being there? I mean, we saw it on the news, but being there.
3: Right. I mean, what's interesting is that in the first, you know, two or three days it, after following the murder, it was mostly Minnesotan folks and Minneapolitans protesting in our own communities. And during those days, it was mostly peaceful. And it wasn't until people really from outside of the communities, often outside of the state, started driving in that, that the heat really started picking up. And we saw, I mean, there were folks in my church who found, um, banners with swastikas on them in the alley, mm-hmm. and and uh, wood soaked in gasoline, and, like, water bottles filled with propellants, like, these things that are, like, clearly from people who are from outside the neighborhood who want to cause a lot of harm to Minneapolis, and so, um, yeah, that, that was really harrowing, and I can talk more after the <laughs> break if you want to, but I think that... As the Chauvin case is going on right now, a lot of people are having to relive those painful experiences and the trauma is just coming right back up.
0: Why don't we take our break? We'll talk a little bit about this after the break. I'm Dave Taffet here with the late Patty Fink. Our guest is uh, Reverend Tyler Sitt. He is a gay Asian millennial pastor uh, in a Methodist church in Minneapolis near where George Floyd was murdered. His new book is Staying Awake, The Gospel for Changemakers. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. Our guest is Tyler Sitt. Um, Tyler, we were talking a little bit before the break about what it was like during the George Floyd demonstrations. Now that the uh, trial is going on, what's going on in the community? Is it subdued? Is it um, nervous? Hmm. Yeah. I,
3: um, just speaking from the folks that I've been in conversation with, um, Everyone's on the edge of their feet. Mm-hmm. I think that for a lot of the community, they're intentionally not watching the testimonies that are being broadcast because of how painful it is to um, relive these moments. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I also think that a lot of, there's a lot of community organizers who are trying to create, um, healing space and space where people can talk about uh, stuff that they have in their hearts and ways for people to create art Um, because we're still processing. I mean, even if the Chauvin trial wasn't happening right now, we would still be in process from all the things that happened this past summer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) These are, these are memories that kind of take a really long time. to to uh, process through your system, hearing the, the helicopters of the national guard flying over your house day and night Mm -hmm. for two weeks, like really does a number on you. So I think that, um, there's a lot of folks who are trying to heal the community as much as we can, and I also would say that um, a lot of the a lot of the folks in my community don't necessarily believe that the justice system is going to create the substantive change that needs that's required and necessary. So I think that there's there's some distrust of the system. There's confusion. There's hurts. Um, there's processing. So. Yeah, a, a, lot for, a lot for a community of faith to be going through, but I also wouldn't have it any other way, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, a community of faith is a place to process those things.
3: Right. That's exactly right. Like, I wish that uh, so, such traumatizing things didn't happen in my community, but if they are going to happen, I hope that people can find a community... And uh, from my perspective, a community of faith, that would be a place where folks could really sort that out. One
0: of the things I want to do is get to your book. So your book is called Staying Awake, the Gospel for Changemakers. It's not out yet, right?
3: Uh, it just came out this week. Oh, okay. Very excited. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Congratulations. Uh,
3: it's available on chalicepress.com and anywhere else you buy books. book. 20% off at Chalice Press right now.
0: Um, the name of the book is Staying Awake explain what staying awake means
3: yeah so I I got the image from um, in the New Testament in the the Christian Bible at the end of the the Gospels there's a story of Jesus at the end of his life right before he was executed um, he told his disciples to stay awake and as you're reading through the story kind of the narrative uh, seems to suggest that the disciples were really tired and he was just trying to tell them to, like, not fall asleep when he was about to get executed. But as I was reading it, I really think that that's a strong command for people living in 2021 to stay awake to injustice that's happening in the world, but also staying awake to the amazing, like, outbreak of life and resilience and abundance that's happening in the age that we're living in.
1: So, how does your your definition of awake um, relate to kind of that common commonplace thing out there that everybody talks about about being woke? Are they related, and how are they or related?
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, I do tr- try to be sassy when I can, and I think that like I intentionally chose staying awake because staying woke is like. Such a, a culturally relevant thing to, to, to tell people about, and I think at its you know at its origins, the idea of staying awoke is the idea that um, not all injustices will be televised, and not all revolutions will be televised, and so it's, it's each person's job to stay like aware of what's going on. Um, it it's subsequently has become morphed into so much. And often it's um, kind of used sarcastically now, like, oh, he's the super woke social justice warrior, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, like kind of mm-hmm. pejoratively. But I think that the metaphor still holds, that there are a lot of things that we need to be awake and, and alert to in society, because there's so much happening right now that it's easy to numb out and shut away, when really we need to be looking out and and reaching out to each other to form community.
0: Okay, so forming a community uh, for the LGBT community, we really came together during the AIDS crisis. Uh, There are other things that have brought the community together, certainly, um, but it brought people from all sides of everything together. Uh, Lesbians came and took care of the gay men who were getting sick. The men and women had never worked together in that same way as we did when we Mm -hmm. had to. I mean, it was just a matter of saving our lives. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about bringing together community.
3: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the HIV-AIDS crisis. I actually talk about it in my book a little Mm -hmm. bit. Um, But I I think that um, marginalized people just... Like intrinsically know how to create community because we need it to survive. <laughs> like you were saying with HIV/AIDS, like it's not like, oh man, do I need to wake up and put on my Sunday clothes and ugh, do I have to show up to community? It's like I'm gonna die <laughs> mm-hmm. if if I don't do this, or if somebody else is gonna die if if I don't show up. To and I think it's that type of urgency and seriousness that we uh we're being called to to create to respond to our current events nowadays. Um, and I think that like you observed, it's only under those circumstances that really interesting coalitions and creativity can happen. Like in Minneapolis, so many more organizations have been working together. Uh, to end police brutality than were happening before, at least from my perspective. Mm
2: -hmm. So,
3: like, we're seeing people come out of the woodworks once they see how much of a life and death issue this is. And I think that um, that's that's really the only way that justice is going to happen, is if we're able to create long-lasting, sustained communities that look at this as a matter of life and death.
1: Well, certainly in building... in in building a cause and community around a cause, the more the merrier. Mm -hmm. And when, when (laughs) coalitions of people from very, very different backgrounds uh, coalesce around one cause, uh, that's the only way anything has ever changed.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Here in Dallas, in the police department, one of the sectors, the South central sector has been experimenting since last summer uh, with sending Healthcare professionals out on healthcare calls. Um, yeah. You know, things that have to do with mental health calls. Police are there. Yeah. Police are there to back them up because you never know whether it's going to get violent or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know what? They found it's working. Sending healthcare mm-hmm. professionals mm-hmm. on healthcare calls. Wow. What and a mental m-
1: health professionals on mental, and mental, mental health. health Calls. They've been doing it in Austin for a really long time. It's been so successful mm-hmm. to send out a mental health team rather than the police.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's a result of the George Floyd uh, murder.
3: Yes. In, yeah, in, it really has brought up the question of what actually is keeping us safe and how do we invest in that? Um, yeah. I'm, what were you going to
0: say? Well, I was going to say, how, you just said, how did we invest in that? How do we invest in things that work?
3: <laughs> yeah. Like, I think it's a little unfair to police to expect them to have a, a PhD in psychology as well as all the other trainings that, they, you know, like mm-hmm. there's a certain point where there's a level of specialization that it, it feels kind of unfair to expect uh, a, a, a jack of all trades to have to be able to handle. And so, I th- I really I'm really supportive of the idea of having responders that are more specific to the type of crisis that is going on. And I would also, I mean just in terms of LGBTQ community like police harassment to the LGBTQ community was a major reason why Don't Wall happened <laughs> and and like our our modest movement happened was in response to that. So um uh, like these are these are issues that are that are close to our community
0: as well Oh they're all interrelated
1: I'm, I was, mm-hmm. I was very Im- impressed with your um, with your book um, and I, I wanted to comment because I've never seen this in a book at all in any kind of book um, mm-hmm. you um, list out some trigger warnings um, ahead of time for your readers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's that's yeah. pretty brilliant.
0: <laughs> oh, right! Where he ah. says in the book that it's okay if you skip these sections. Yeah,
1: and and just to give yeah. a heads up, because I've never ever seen that in a in a book of any kind. Oh God.
3: well, yeah. I have, I appreciate uh, you calling that out. I think that we, there's a lot, a lot of LGBTQ people at infinity city church, and I just know that as I'm preaching. Um, I might not even know it, but if I, if I'm preaching on a certain text or if a certain theme comes up that reminds folks of their previous homophobic church, that can put them in a pretty tough place in terms of mental health. So, we just have gotten used to saying upfront, like, hey, this is, this is what we're gonna talk about. We can't predict everything that's gonna set people off, but like, this is, we, we wanna show that we care about you by naming this upfront.
0: You mentioned homophobic church. I, I, before I forget, Patty, I want to congratulate your homophobic school on its win in the final four. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> T- Patty is a graduate of Baylor. Um, yeah, sick Bears. bears. Yep. So now they can say that they have a real national championship, not just when the um, Baylor lesbians won.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Because several years ago they did. And, and, and,
1: and quite the force then, too. Uh, it's, it's good to see the men follow along.
3: <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? So let's it, see it go out years yep. ahead of time.
0: <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing I wanted to mention, by the way, is uh, our legislature uh, had its annual football game. The lesbians won.
1: I saw that. I saw that's exciting.
0: Wow. Julie, what? Jessica, all, the, all, the whole bunch of them played. We
1: have um, five lesbians, six.
0: six lesbians in six
1: now in the Texas House, wow. and they formed the um, the Texas House LGBT caucus
0: and football team
1: and football team. <laughs> <laughs> they'll they'll okay. circulate. I get all the other sports too. it needs the softball team right away. Right. <laughs> Summer's coming.
3: Summer's coming. Oh, if we put lesbians in charge of COVID relief, it would have been done by like April 15th last year. You know? mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
1: We would have gotten this taken care of. So, week we're we getting done. Mm-hmm. That's right.
2: That's right.
0: Uh, that's oh, that's, that's the way to do it. Um <laughs> Also in okay so um you we were talking about the trigger points before we go away from oh, that yeah. um, tell us what some of those trigger points that you mentioned in the book are and sure, why again yeah, no. why you thought what you wrote was going to trigger some people
3: yeah so like um for example we the, the book which covers um, nine different practices kind of christian practices for how to show up for justice um uh, we have testimonies at the end of each of those chapters, and some of the testimonies are people who grew up in very uh, painfully homophobic churches, and then they came to New City Church, and that's their testimony, which is powerful, and I wanted to include it, but also know that for folks who aren't at that point of their journey, that might be a really hard thing to read. Mm-hmm. I also mentioned things like uh, white supremacist violence and sexual assault, and poverty, I know that um, purity culture, like I know that all these things have caused a lot of people pain, and that's why I wanted to put it in my book, because I wanted to respond to it and try to create healing. But I also know that um, some folks are better off just kind of skipping over that because that's where they are in their journey. Mm
1: -hmm. An interesting one that you've included is imperialism. I think that's, that's powerful... Um, powerful roots, I'm, I'm sure for for um, well, really everybody, um, mm-hmm. except those you know seeking white dominance. Um, imperialism is something that's just that's occurred for millennia, <laughs> and has yes. its and has enormous consequences. That's 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 an and, interesting thing to yeah, include. Yeah,
3: mental health, social, all levels of society are traumatized by imperialism. So. Yeah. I, I think that was really important, um, least of which because there are some folks at New City who come from countries that have been colonized and, um, or were colonized by the US or another Western country. And part of figuring out their story is unpacking what that meant for their identity.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that, that is interesting. Um, what you're you're the child of immigrants, right?
3: Yes. Okay. My so my dad is from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. Keep going.
0: Yeah. No. Go ahead.
3: I was just gonna say my dad is from Hong Kong. Uh, my mom is the is a second or third generation German Im, uh, immigrant. So she's uh, like a white woman who grew up in Minnetonka, Minnesota. <laughs> oh gosh, Minnesota. <laughs> and they met at the University of Minnesota at a disco dancing class. <laughs> uh,
1: wow, <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's a keeper. So I like, I like to say, yeah, that's right. When, when you meet your love at a disco dancing class, you know it's for life. So <laughs> I, I owe my life to disco. I like to say. Oh. Um, but I cut you off. What, what, was of um, what was
0: the rest of the question? You know, um, I don't even remember what my question was. Oh, I, oh. <laughs> I was going to say, we're all children of immigrants. Um, right. right. You know, for for me, on one side, it's my grandparents. The other side, my great-grandparents. But still, mm.
1: uh,
0: mm-hmm. you know, still we're all children of immigrants. Um, mm-hmm. Patty ex-immigrated. She lived in Libya for a while.
1: In, and in Europe. Oh. Yeah, I, I was oh, an oil brat that moved moved there wow. with my family, and of course we came back. But my my family is yes, my my dad was the first generation American. He didn't speak English um, even in his early years.
0: He yeah, spoke German. Yeah, my father. Um, oh. the, my father's family moved to New Jersey, where they spoke Hungarian at home, which is very useful in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Must be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It was, wow. like, right behind the what's the Meadowlands now, or as my father described it, miles and miles into the country. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but we're all children of immigrants. Um, I don't know where I was yeah. going with that. Um,
3: well, just to comment on that, I, I think that um, I love hearing about you know, people speaking German at home or speaking Hungarian at home, because I I love kind of the richness and the history that's there. And I think that um, one of the real disservices that we do in, in the United States is to say, like, in order to be able to be in society, you have to leave that at home. You can't bring any of your particular identities to, um, to the public square,
2: mm-hmm.
3: when, like, it can that that's just so boring to me. You know? <laughs> like yeah. it seems like th- like there's uh the more like interesting culture and nuance that we can bring, the um the richer off our whole society will be. And that's one of the things that I talk about in the second chapter of my book, um, which is centering marginalized voices, is um I think that society should be like a forest where there's a lot, a lot of different biodiversity and all the parts understand that's like they're all here to work together as different parts. Like the point of a forest is that there's not just one thing, there's a lot of things working together. And I think that our society similarly can celebrate difference and celebrate diversity if we see how all of these things kind of create a social ecosystem that leaves all of us better off. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Why don't we take our uh, last break? You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. We're talking to Tyler Sitt. His new book is Staying Awake, The Gospel for Changemakers. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And we're uh, talking to Tyler Sitt here on Lambda Weekly. He's, his new book is Staying Awake, The Gospel for Changemakers. Um, uh, you are a Methodist pastor. That's right uh the Methodist Church is still struggling with uh, whether or not uh gays and lesbians should be allowed to get married. well, we can get married, but just not to a same sex partner in your church officially um, right Do you do marriages in your church? We do are yep. you still and, uh, yeah. are you still in danger of being um charged?
3: Yes. Yeah. Uh, Yep, both as an openly gay ordained pastor, as well as someone who officiates same sex marriages. I I am at risk for that, for sure.
0: Okay, so we've just been talking. We talked for like a half an hour before the show, and um, we've just been talking on the air. You're saying you could be charged as an openly gay pastor. What would it look like for you to be a an unopened pastor? I don't know what it's called—a closeted pastor.
3: A closeted—I mean,
0: you'd be talking yeah, like this, first of all, I guess.
3: I don't think I don't think I can pull it off. I've always had the same voice that I have right now, and uh, no one who has seen, heard, or smelled me ever wondered <laughs> if I was gay, but um. I, yeah, I think, you know, in the United Methodist uh, Book of Discipline, which is kind of our, uh, our agreement of how we operate as a denomination, the rule is that you can't be a self-avowed practicing homosexual, is the way that they phrase it.
0: Have you self-avowed? I totally
3: disagree. With <laughs> well, I, I for sure have on this radio station, hmm. I haven't before. So. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, like, there are pastors who, for example... Uh, will get married even, but they won't talk about it ever, and and then they technically can't be brought up on charges because they're not felt about, but I think that that is such a tragedy and so unfair for for those pastors and for the ministry that I, um, I decided to come out because it was what was best for my church.
0: Straight Tyler just wouldn't be as much fun as gay Tyler.
3: Yeah, because... Street time wouldn't
1: be able to talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is how it's done in the in the Southern Baptist Church. It's just the self-avowed is missing. Everything else is the same, and everybody says, oh, okay, and just obliviously go forward, you know, what do you mean he's gay? Of course he's not gay. Right. He, he just plays the organ. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, and, and they just ignore it. And, and, and if there's a hint of self-avowal, then there's trouble.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you know, yeah. my synagogue meets at a uh, United Methodist Church. They don't call themselves mm-hmm. the United Methodist Church anymore, just North Haven Church with a big pride flag mm-hmm. over the United <laughs> Methodist part of it now. Um, and anytime that we've discussed anything about this, I always start by saying, I know it's none of my business, but... <laughs> <laughs> Like, for for one service, um, you know, Methodist churches uh, are dry. So for one service, I was, uh, we were thinking of doing something a little bit different. And so I said to the pastor uh, at the church, I know we can do wine because it's sacramental wine. So for, I forgot which holiday we were doing this for, but, so for this holiday, what we were thinking of doing instead are sacramental martinis. (laughs) No, it didn't go go over. It didn't go over. But but when it comes to uh, accepting uh, same sex marriage, what I have never understood is in our church, we want to do same sex marriages, so we'll do them. In your church, you don't want to do same sex marriages, so you don't do them. Why should a pastor of one church be able to file charges against the pastor of another church? Because I know in Judaism, we have these you know rabbis will meet and uh like the central conference of american rabbis is the over uh oversees the uh reform rabbis they'll vote on something and our rabbis will come home uh, from their big meetings and say yeah i'm not going to do that it's just you know you do in your place what you want to do and we'll do what we want to do and we can both be happy and get along that's why we have multiple places of worship and in, in fact, you talk about that in your book, how you have to find the right fit.
3: Yes. Yeah, I have a, <laughs> a checklist for how to find a, a church that's the right fit. <laughs> yeah. I I think that one of the complexities with the United Methodist Church that, um, for better or for worse, just changes the way that we have conversations is that the United Methodist Church convenes a global legislation to make decisions. So we don't, we didn't come up with these policies on an American national level. We came up with these policies in front of a global voting body. So we have delegates coming from the Philippines and from uh, Uganda and from Russia and, like, obviously the understanding of sexuality is in a really different place across the world. And I'm I say different, like, I'm not going to judge whether it's better or worse, but I'm just going to mean that like, the American understanding of sexuality is really different from right. other countries. So when we vote on these policies, in some cases, international delegates um, are, are like, obviously, they're voting for how this would be applied in their country, but they don't know kind of what that would mean for Americans in our country, and, and vice versa. So I think that one of the real questions that UN Methodism is trying to figure out and, um, is, would it make sense for us to make like because a majority of the United Methodists in the United States do support LGBT inclusion and same-sex marriage and ordination. A majority of them do.
0: And that but includes that than- includes just about every Methodist church in Dallas County. Over in Fort Worth, yeah. not so much. So.
3: Well, <laughs> God bless Fort Worth. Yeah. <laughs> It's different city by city, but a majority of United Methodists do support
0: inclusion. Sure. Sure. Um, We have like two minutes left. One of the uh, Mm -hmm. chapters that I loved was uh, staying awake to stillness. Yeah. Talk about that for just a minute. Um, And we do need to go because we're making sure the studio is safe for the next uh, group that comes in to do their show.
3: Yes. So, and this is a good note to end on, I think. But uh, one of the chapters is dedicated to Sabbath, the day of rest, and I just think, you know, social justice people who care about social justice, activists, organizers, teachers, social workers, um, are kind of in like constant alert mode, and that begins to burn out really fast.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, having a dedicated day that says, "I'm not going to." pick up my phone and look at the news. I'm not going to check my email and look at work. I'm just going to, like, rest and enjoy the abundance of God and trust that by the time that I'm back after my day off, that um, that I will show up better for it. So, um, yeah, it's a really important rhythm, and I think that. The irony is that I call this book Staying Awake, but really I'm asking people to take naps and take a break <laughs> at least once a week.
0: So. Well, it helps you stay awake. We can't okay. stay awake without uh, without rest.
3: That's right. Yeah.
0: So, Tyler, this has been a pleasure. Uh, really a lot of fun.
3: I'm really honored to be with you all. God bless you. Um, you can pick up Staying Awake anywhere where books are sold or you can look at links
1: at
0: Thank you for being with us.
1: Yes, thank you, and, and come back again. Well, sure. We need to get you back on and, and talk about uh, this uh, interesting, you're an interesting guy.
0: Really an interesting guy.
3: <laughs> I really enjoyed the conversation, so let's keep in touch. We'll
0: Definitely. do that. For all of us here at Lambda Weekly, have a good week. Uh, LeBron will be back with us next week and be best.